You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 209 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with... Who am I here with, Al? <laughs> I don't know, Val. <laughs> Who are you there with? I'm here with the wonderful Alison Tate. How are you going, Al? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, Valerie. Great. That sounds enthusiastic <laughs> enough. I'm actually it's just deep. trying to – I'm working on a new theory, okay? So having had my Buddhist moment and talked about fair to middling and how it's good, and I still am yeah. um, totally with that, um, yeah. but I also thought to myself that maybe what I need to try and do is – is um is work on a fake it till you make it kind of a thing. So oh. if I tell everyone that I'm enthusiastically very well, maybe yes. I will be enthusiastically very well. Yeah, I think so. What That's, do you think? It's worth an, well, I think it's worth an experiment, isn't it? All right. So how, how are you feeling? Are you are you feeling like I'm enthusiastically very well? I am. See, right. it works. It's working. We're bo- <laughs> look at us. We're both enthusiastically very well now. I hope you people out there are also enthusiastically very well. What have you been doing this week to make you enthusiastically very well? Oh, what have I <laughs> The things I've been – well, I have to say this is where it all falls apart a little bit because the things oh. I've been doing this week probably, you know, are not – making me enthusiastically very well. However, they are making me feel quite satisfied. I have been working very, very hard, Valerie, Mm. on um, putting some – well, you know, we talk often about the benefit of the author platform being that it allows you to continue conversations about your books well and truly you know, past the launch date of said book. So as you know, the Book of Secrets has now been out for about six weeks or so, which in – you know, if I was just to rely on a publisher, that would pretty much be my, that would be it. That that would be my publicity and promotion done right there. Um, But the fact that I have my own space and my own sort of, uh, well, many, many spaces now that I think about it, um, allows me to continue, you know, to kind of talk about the book and to to, um, also promote other Australian authors and to to do all the things that, you know, I feel are really important because I think if we if we look at the, you, you can't sort of exist as one little entity within an industry mm. without mm. helping to bring the industry together. So, anywho, I have although been, although you you can, but not successfully. Well, you can. Yes, mm. it's quite lonely and isolating, and mm. it doesn't do you that much good. However, no. so I've been working really hard on um, you know publicity stuff and putting a whole lot mm. of stuff into place to help sort of keep my book um, out there in the lead up to Christmas and you know and uh, beyond, hopefully. Um, yes. But also, you know, I'm doing I'm doing book lists for websites that also include other Australian authors, books that I love. My your kids 
Next Read Facebook group is just going off at the moment. If you're interested in children's fiction on any level, um, as a parent, as a teacher, as a librarian, as a whatever, come and join us because we, it's just such a great space um, for talking about books. And as an author or as an aspiring author, I think it's an incredibly valuable space not to get in there and bang on about your own books um, because that, of course, is banned and I will delete you. Um, that was enthusiastic, wasn't it? That was, <laughs> yes. Did you hear me? I was like a full bouncer there. I will do it. Totally. Don't do it. Um, but to see what people are talking about and if you're sort of like looking – because, you know, anyone will tell you that market research is an essential part of getting your book to the right publisher, um, you know, at the right time, in the right place, et cetera, et cetera. And I can tell you that the conversations that go on in that group are just really it's, – it's, it's an eye-opening experience to see what people are recommending over and over and over again and why. It's really interesting. So, you know, yes. as a, if you're an aspiring children's author, then I really recommend joining. You don't have to join my group. It's okay. I know you probably get enough of me on a weekly basis. But join mm-hmm. some kind of group like that because um, it's just a really, really interesting space to kind of get a feel for what people are looking for because this is yeah. where the – this is where the real value lies because it's a uh, – I believe when we spoke to Louise Park um, – a little while ago, a few episodes back, she talked about, you know, if you want to uh, be published, and particularly if you want to be published in series fiction, how important it is to find the gaps in the market. And it's what people are looking for that will tell you where the gaps in the market are. You know, I've got a yes. seven-year-old boy and I'm trying to get him to go from sort of, you know, treehouse books into the next level, but I can't find the right book, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes. It really is quite an interesting uh, experience. Anyway, so there I am, enthusiastically very well because I'm immersed with my people all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to add to that, and I think that uh, participating, well, sorry, uh, joining those groups is certainly extremely valuable in terms of market research and seeing what people are talking about, why they like it, and stuff. What you just said. However. You're only getting 50% out of it. I reckon the other 50% is you need to participate in the group. So don't oh, just yeah. be a lurker and read yeah. other people's yeah. stuff. Don't be a lurker and just absorb. If you that's Absorbing it is great, but it's not necessarily going to get you in front of people who can potentially buy your book if you're a children's author. So as Alison said, that doesn't mean you should go in there and go buy my book, buy my book, but just <sighs> participate as a human being so that people get to know you and when they get to know you, people get curious about you then and they they then, you know, see you in other places online or or they might connect with you personally and realise that you are a children's author and, and that you um, – maybe have recently released or about to release a book. So I think participation, people who don't participate in such groups aren't going to get as much out of them. So that's just. No, it's extremely true. And the other thing is, it's the interesting thing too, is that um, so in that particular group, Your Kids Next Read, we have some of Australia's best known and best loved children's authors who are in their recommending the heck out of other people's books like it, i mm. it's it's um you know and participating and because nobody knows the industry nobody knows what's out there like like they do we have teachers mm. we have librarians we have booksellers you know if you're looking for a book there is mm. someone there who's got like 50 million you know potential uh, possibilities for you and it's yeah it's it's great to see how 
the thing I love about the children's book uh, section of publishing in particular is just how enthusiastic people are. It's it's mm. like, you know, they want they want your kid to be a reader. So they are going to be like, try this, try this, try that, whatever. Yeah. They are in, enthusiastically very well, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, speaking of enthusiastically very well, I do have another reason for being so. Oh, um, Yeah, so the Kids Reading Guide um, has come out uh, today or this week and it is – so it's a a fantastic little guide uh, for books for the next year. It's put out every year. Um, It's it's curated by a group of sort of, um, you know, independent booksellers and uh, industry experts and things like that. Um, And it's a a little guide to, you know, some of the best books that – for, for kids to read, you know, for the next year. And the Book of Secrets is in there. Yay! Yay! Champagne streaming oh, applause. You can see why I'm enthusiastically very well. Yes. Um, yeah, it's really exciting. That's so it's exciting. It's a really exciting thing. It goes out to all the independent booksellers um, in Australia and you can pick oh. up a copy at your local indie bookstore um, and you can also see it online at kidsreadingguide.com.au and it's, look, it's a, like, you know, obviously mine is not the only book in there. It's uh, it's a quite a lengthy and lovely document um, but, you know, I only have eyes for my own book in that particular yes. book. So, you know, yes. I have to talk about that. But it's, um, yeah, it's really exciting and it's all divided up into, you know, picture books, junior fiction, middle fiction, YA, you know, et cetera. So, you know what I'm saying? I'm very I'm excited. excited. Oh, well done. You've got a big week. You've had a big <laughs> week. It's been a busy, busy week. Anyway, what yes. about you? What have you been doing? Let's talk about you for a moment. <laughs> Just for a minute. What about me? My li- it's it's as if my life went on hold. Well, it didn't actually go on hold, but my it's my brain space went on hold when I was finishing this piece, this artwork that I finally oh, yeah. delivered yesterday. Oh yay! Oh my god! <laughs> yay! Were you pleased so, with it? Did it turn out how you hoped? Uh, yes. So I was definitely pleased with it. I love it actually. And I feel a bit sad having to give it up. Um, in fact, my partner, he said, it's like we gave birth and had to give it up for adoption straight away. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't even get to enjoy it on the wall. No, oh. <laughs> no. So it was. It's. It was a bit strange. Um, but you know, I, I. I finished it. You know, got to appreciate it for all of about three seconds, and then uh, had to deliver it. Um, so, so is yeah, there a picture? Was... You're going to put a picture in the show notes, right? No, I won't put a picture in the show no, you notes. Absolutely People don't want to see my. Valerie, we've been talking about it for weeks. <laughs> we've been there with you, holding your hand as you screamed. You absolutely have to put a photo in the show notes. If you're interested, right. Valerie, we'll put a photo in the show notes for you to look at. No it's pressure. not a very good photo, though, because I had to just quickly snap them on my iPhone before I whisked it away to adoption okay. for adoption. I'm, sure, I'm I, sure it's still beautiful. Don't worry. I hope it's new parents, well, parent actually, um, love it as much as I do. But anyway. I'm sure they will. So it was something a little bit different because it was made out of wood. So I, um, it was a great exercise to uh, master, you know, crafting wood. Um, but I, but my next thing is going to go be going back to painting. But mm. I'm just going to need a well earned rest. I'm going to binge on some Netflix, mm. and um, yeah, just to have a little bit of a rest. Are you watching? I mean, sorry to just have an aside here. Are you watching the new Will and Grace? No. 
I'm not. So good, so good. Is it? So good. Yeah, I love it. Sorry. Sorry, that's just an aside, everyone. If anyone else is watching the new Will and Grace, let me know. I'm someone to talk to. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Let's. Um, To the world of writing and publishing this week. Mm. So I have a link and it's from The New Yorker and I thought it was an interesting um interesting topic. It's called When British Authors Write American Dialogue or Try To. Now, Um. this can absolutely uh, apply to Australian authors as well. And it's not just about writing American dialogue. It's also about, you know, when your books get sent to America, just like yours have, and the words that are changed, Not because it's not just the spelling. Mm -hmm. There's certain phrases that are just what Americans just don't get or something. And so it talks about the fact that um, there's a particular um, British author, how he needed to, how how he sent his uh, manuscript to American readers and American editors so that they could suggest changes, things like windscreen in the UK but windshield in America and how he had written a hire car or hired car instead of a rental car, which is what they say in America. And apparently in Britain they say ring off instead of hang up. Now, I think that this is certainly a very, very useful thing to do if your book is either going to America or your um, character is American. But what I found just a little bit kind of confusing, not confusing, but it's like it, it just maybe it's because I've watched so many American shows. I would never have said hide car. They always say rental in mm. the American shows. They always say hang up. It's like wh- why wouldn't you even know that your, um, uh, your character would say that? So... I think that it's great that uh, this author has taken the time to to bother to check with Americans about dialogue, but I'm kind of like, really? Just spend some time with Americans. <laughs> I think maybe it's just a, yeah, I think maybe it's also just a default thing though too. Like when you're writing, particularly if you're doing like a first draft or something like that, even if you mm. are, so it's a funny thing because you are thinking about how your character talks and stuff like that, but you still subconsciously go to your default so you actually end up maybe you you can end up typing things that you don't actually even realize you've typed and then it's not till you go back and go through it that you might even notice it and it's so easy not to see things I just don't even Mm. I can't even begin to tell you how easy it is not to see things because it's what you expect to see so your brain expects to see that so your brain doesn't go wait a minute it should be rental because your brain Mm. Is is your default position is hired car, so mm. it's an interesting thing. But what I'm just reading this here though, and they're talking about um, Lionel Shriver's book, mm. um, The Mandibles, and you know, it, it's they're all sort of you know set in the entire in the United States in the future, and all the characters are American, and yet mm. a father assures his son that a set of silverware could come in useful, blah blah blah. But then. A woman signs off a telephone conversation with her sister by deploying a British term of endearment by puppet. Now, that is a typo because it has to be poppet, right? Must be poppet. It has to be poppet. So that's what I'm saying. That's how easy it is. That's how easy it is. I mean, they've done it in their own story. Anyway. 
in the article also, Nick Hornby talks about the fact that when he has American characters, he absolutely vets them. So he get, lets, you know, American friends and American editors read it so to make sure that his American characters are, are saying the right things. So I guess that's something that's important is not to assume because there are sometimes when you read um, certain uh, dialogue when it's dialect or mm. when it's like cockneyed or when it's broken English or when it's um, just even just from another country and they're, they're using different terminology. Sometimes it is grating because you just know that they wouldn't say that, perhaps because you've been there or you've lived there or whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. be yeah. careful I, when writing a dialogue. It's also important, yeah, it's important to remember too that it's like, did we not have a conversation really recently about elegant and all that sort of stuff we were talking about, how <laughs> the pronunciation of words in Australia, even in, you know, here where it's all pretty much, you know, homogenous in many ways is different. Whereas in the States, you do have all of those different sort of, you know, you have the accents are different, those different sort of from state to state, they have those kind of slightly different cultural things and and you sort of like going, well, you, you have to can take that into consideration. Like there's certain things that I, I would imagine people from the southern states of America would say and do that people from the northern states or the Midwest would not. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's, that you, know, you can't just assume and you can't assume in Australia either because people yeah. – it's like the whole togs versus bathers debate. Yes, you know, that's swimmers, right. etc. That kind of stuff. I mean, every once in a while, someone will put a picture of something like that up, and then be like, "What do you call this?" And there's like fights in the comments because you know they're not bathers, they're togs or they're swimmers. Yes. Or whatever, you know? I remember um, when I was working at a Girls Magazine, and they put on the cover because all the magazines, at, certainly at the time, were based in Sydney, and they put on the cover uh, twenty best cozies this summer and the hate mail you would get from around the country but my mum and dad are from Queensland you know so they're obviously older they're from Queensland they to this day call a suitcase a port have you got your port Al like my port what wow (laughs) it's 10 10 o'clock in the morning I'm not drinking port (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no they still call them ports it's really cute which I'm assuming is short for portmanteau I don't know well, no. I'm like, don't say no because I've got cousins up there, North Queensland, who are still the same and they call them ports as well. But it's not short for portmanteau. I don't know what it's short for. <laughs> you tell me. How do you come up with port? Well, maybe it is. <laughs> Go get your yeah, ports. Yeah, I suppose so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know. All right. Well, let's move on to our next link, which is actually from Lindy Alexander's blog. And you found it, didn't you, Al? It's, are you ready to become a full-time freelance writer? What did you like about this post? Which, of course, we'll put in the show notes. we put all the links in the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Um, well, I, I am actually liking this blog a lot at the moment. I think Lindy's doing a really great job of putting together some good, you know, solid, basic, helpful, practical, useful, freelancey kind of stuff um, for new freelancers. And I just think that this is probably um, 
a, a worthy sort of thing to talk about because I know you and I have discussed our very different approaches to going into free into freelance writing. You know, in the past, mm. um, you leapt in and I did not, which does not surprise me on any level. Um, mm. But I I think it's uh, it's worth considering because I think a lot of people, as we've talked about, discuss, have discussed the you know the the notion of you know the dream of freelance writing is one thing and the reality of freelance writing is quite another. And you need to actually know if well to me you need to actually know if you're going if you're in a financial position to become um a freelance a full-time freelance writer and she's she's basically just put together sort of like four questions to ask yourself before mm. you get, get started and um i think one of the first one the first one she puts up is actually something that i think a lot of new freelancers don't think about um and that is are you committed to maintaining relationships and building new ones and i think mm. that is a really really good and valid point because i think a lot of people think about the writing and the money and whatever but the really um the really interesting thing about being a freelancer is the amount of work that you need to put in to relationships and networking and um, and sort of keeping those channels of communication open. I remember writing a post years ago on my blog, which was all about the coffee, you know, like I was on my mm-hmm. way to Sydney because I had about 27 different coffee appointments with, you know, various mm. editors and things like that um, because I was, you know, based on the south coast of New South Wales, but that relationship, that face-to-face aspect of the relationship um, and keeping people, you know, keeping myself in the front of people's minds, you know, yeah. if they need the job done was so important. And I yeah. think, you know, there's probably less coffeeing now. I mean, this is probably, you know, seven or eight years ago um, mm. because so many of our relationships are maintained you know, digitally, but you still, you've got to keep in touch with people and you have to be able to have a little bit of hustle about you. If you want to be a full-time freelance writer, you cannot be reticent about picking up the phone. You cannot be reticent about sending an email. You cannot be reticent about putting yourself out there, you know? Um, And this is something I often see when I'm teaching my class for the Australian Writers' Centre, you know, people saying to me, you know, oh, do I have to do this by phone because, you know, the the interview, do I have to do it by phone? I'm like, Mm. well, you know what? You are actually going to have to speak to people. Now (laughs) is a good time to start. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm obviously in grumpy owl mode at that point. But nonetheless, <laughs> I, it is something that I do see a lot of. Do I have to talk to people? Well, yes, you yes. do. And if you don't yes. have that bit of hustle about you, if you can't follow up and make the call and make the initial contact and all of that sort of stuff, you're going to find it really hard as a freelancer. Mm, that um, is so true. I, I agree. And I think that one of the things that she says is in this post, do you really want to be a full-time freelance writer? Yeah. Because you actually need to be, you need to want it. You need to be hungry for it. It doesn't just fall in your lap because as you said, you need to have that little bit of hustle about you. You need to be prepared to be pitching ideas or thinking about ideas, or you know, a lot, or like all the time. All the time. And, and so, yeah, do you really want to put in the hard yards in order to be a full-time freelance writer. And I think that um, it's something you need to think think about. Otherwise, but I, I also think her last point is, is actually yeah. really worth considering too, and that is are you prepared for the lag? And right. this is something that I think a lot of people are not necessarily prepared for when they start freelancing, mm. particularly if you do the I'm walking out on Friday and starting freelance, you know, full-time freelancing on Monday. Um, you have to be prepared you know, so you've, you've got to sort of have, 
you've got to have enough financial wherewithal to cover you for a few months at a time at any given mm. time because, you know, sometimes, um, you know, she talks about the fact that pitches to editors can take days, weeks or months to get commissioned. She recently mm. had an editor commission her five months after the pitch. <laughs> so she pitched mm. it five months ago and suddenly the commission comes through. And the other thing is that invoices don't get paid immediately. So you can go mm. days, weeks, months, even years She's here. I've waited over a year for an article to be published and that can be until payday because they're often paying on publication now and that is something that really needs to be considered. You've got to factor that in because otherwise you're there with no income for your three, you know, the first three months going, how yeah. am I going to survive this? So yeah. that is definitely something I think that needs to be taken into consideration as well. I think that it's a bit in terms of paying on publication. I think it's a it's it's quite a mix. I think some people are paying, some publishers are mm-hmm. paying on publication, but but many are also just paying on just their regular terms of yeah. the invoice. You know, yeah. And I think so, what you want is probably a good mix of those kind of clients. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I would say, even though it, it's not an exact science, it I would say generally the bigger companies, you know, the Fairfaxes and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, they would just pay in their regular invoicing machine, not necessarily upon publication. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the smaller publishers are more likely to be paying on publication. So that, like I said, not an exact science, but a, a vague guideline anyway. So let's move on to, um, you've got a link for us from Aerogram Studio. Is that right? I do. This dropped into my feed and I was just like, oh, really? So (laughs) it's, it's a link that they, um, put up recently and it's, uh, it's about the Wallace Stegner Creative Writing Fellowships at Stanford University. Applications close on the 1st of December and they are open worldwide and they're giving out 10 fellowships. And basically what this is, a Wallace Stegner fellowship provides writers with a living stipend of US $26,000 a year for a period of two years. In addition, fellows tuition and health insurance are paid for by the university's creative writing program. Five of the fellowships will be awarded to fiction writers and five will be awarded to poets. And I was like, oh, wow, but yeah, surely I wouldn't even be eligible but wait, to apply for this. But wait, to apply for this fellowship, writers do not require a degree, and there are no tests for admission. In awarding mm-hmm. fellowships, the selection committee considers the quality of the candidate's creative work, their potential for growth, and their ability to contribute to and profit from its writing workshops. All the fellows in each genre convene weekly in a three-hour workshop with faculty. There are no citizenship restrictions and the program is open to writers around the globe, regardless of their US visa status. There are also no age restrictions. The youngest fellow to date was age 22 and the oldest 75. A history of publication is not necessarily required. Though mm-hmm. past Stegner fellows have frequently had work published by literary journals prior to being accepted into the program. Application fee of $85. Wow. And then there's like, oh, you have to provide, you know, you have to write stuff to get in. You can't yes. just oh. send, off, <laughs> send off an application. <sighs> um, so you have to include How a bio, cool. contact information for two recommenders, a statement of plans of up to a 1,000 words that give the selection committee a sense of why you're applying, a manuscript of writing, approximately 9,000 words for fiction or 10 to 15 pages for poetry. I mean, yeah, awesome. 
I know. And I was just sitting there thinking, can I dump How the kids cool. for a few years? Or is yeah, that probably do it. Make it they can mom. look after themselves. <laughs> they can look after themselves. They you can just, you know, keep in touch with I can with wait them till they start. leave home and go then, you know. I can be up to seventy five. I've still got some years ahead of me. <laughs> But seriously, people, if you're out there and you're in a position to apply for this, then please apply. I mean, yes. wow. You know, what have you got to lose? It's Except for really $85. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. So what? If, for what it could get you. No. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Well, we'll put the link in the show notes. And um, if you do end up applying and getting in, make sure you tell us. We'd love to uh, We'd love to we'll, know. We'll interview you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our competition this week. This is, thanks to Mad Men Entertainment, 10 double passes, so that's 20 people are going to experience this, so 10 double passes to Loving Vincent, the world's first fully oil-painted feature film. The film brings together the paintings of Vincent van Gogh to life to tell his remarkable story. Every one of the 65,000 frames of the film is an oil painting, hand-painted by 125 professional oil painters. Wow. This is, like, so cool. So, I mean, of course, if you want to uh, enter, then go to writerscentercomau slash win. That's writerscentercomau com.au slash win and entries close on the 6th of November 2017. But how cool is that? Did you read about, I read about this film and I thought this sounds so amazing where they've, they've filmed it like with famous um, actors. I can't remember them now, but um, famous actors, but um, yeah, they've, they've turned it into the whole thing being an oil painting in the Van Gogh kind of style. Yeah, no, I, I didn't actually know anything about it, but now that you've told me that I, I've, very keen to see it. Sounds really interesting. Mm, mm, it does. All right. So make sure you enter. Now let's move on to the word of the week. Are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, Val, you missed. I've messed up the line. Go back. Start again. Oh, okay. Sorry. Rewind. <laughs> so, Al. <laughs> oh, God. You're not supposed to giggle. Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I'm really ready now, aren't I? I'm so ready. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be more ready, Val. Okay, so it is propitiate. Propitiate, Ooh. which is P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-E. Propitiate. Hmm. Have mm. you heard of it? I have. I've seen it, but I don't. I I don't know without context if I could tell you what it meant. Do you know what I mean? I think it's probably one of those words that I read, and you know, some words you just determine from the context. Oh, yes. it, it's it's that's what it means. You know, it's sort of like. But I, I couldn't actually give you a definition. So you better give me one because here we are. This is what we're doing. <laughs> this is the whole point, it, right? It sounds like propitiate because it sounds a bit like propagate or something like that, but it's not. It's according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means to make favorably inclined or to appease or conciliate. So you might say that if someone is not on your side, not currently on your side, you might want to propitiate them. Or you could say um, she propitiated him by cooking his favorite dinner. Mm. You know? Mm. There you go. Propitiate. See, you you can use that this week. Mm. 
All right, let's move on then to our writer-in-residence. Who is our writer-in-residence, Al? Oh, this week I had a chat with the lovely Jacqueline Moriarty um, about, well, among many other things about her new uh, middle grade novel, which is called The Extremely Inconvenient Adventures of Bronte Metalstone. And I have to say that it is a, um, I haven't actually read it yet, but I have a copy here. Um, it's beautiful. Like it's one of those books that you would give um, for Christmas because it's just beautiful. The cover is beautiful. It has this gold. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. It's a hardback. So, you know, which makes it even more special. And it's just a lovely, lovely, you know, book. And it's getting rave reviews as well. So clearly, you know, despite the fact that I am behind in my reading, many others have read it. It's got illustrations. It's just gorgeous. You know, it's one of those gorgeous little little things. Anyway, we had a terrific chat about the book, about the writing of the book. Um, we also had a little chat because of Jacqueline, of course, is Leanne Moriarty's sister, one of um, one of her sisters. She has another sister as well called Nicola. And um, so we had a little bit of a chat about what it's like to be you know, in a writing family, particularly when mm. one of you has, you know, been walking the red carpet at the Emmys <laughs> yeah. while the rest of you are in your dressing gowns writing novels. So, um, yeah, we had a bit of a chat about that too. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting chat and I hope you guys enjoy it. Jacqueline Moriarty is the award-winning author of Feeling Sorry for Celia and A Corner of White and has won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award three times. Three. Her books have been translated into several languages, have been named Best Books for Young Adults by the American Librarian Association, awarded the Boston Globe Horn Honor Book Prize and shortlisted for America's Nebula Prize. She has previously written for teenagers and adults, but for the first time she is now turning her attention to younger readers with the extremely inconvenient adventures of Bronte Metalstone. So welcome to the program, Jacqueline. Thank you so much and thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> in my best video <laughs> voice. Um, oh, all right, beautiful. so let's talk about your new book because it generated a whirlwind of interest before it was even published. I saw lots of different sort of spectres, spheres of the uh, of the online world talking about it, librarians, booksellers, readers, etc. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. It's uh, The Extremely Inconvenient Adventures of Bronte Metalstone is a story of a 10-year-old girl named Bronte who's it opens uh, with her learning that her parents have been killed by pirates um, and she's not that bothered by this because she's been raised by her aunt Isabel and has never really known her parents. But her parents have left her detailed instructions requiring her to travel through the kingdoms and empires uh, delivering treasure to, I should close this door, I just realised, sorry, there's a truck going by, I'm letting air into my apartment. Sorry, the, uh, she's got to travel the kingdoms and empires, delivering treasure to her ten other aunts. Um, and the instructions are very detailed, and they've also been boarded by fairy cross-stitch, which is a kind of magical cross-stitch uh, border, which means that if she in any way breaks the rules in the instructions, then her hometown will be torn to pieces. Goodness gracious. No pressure then. <laughs> exactly. So yes. where did the idea for such a magical, you know, mystical adventure story come from? It's difficult to know where it came from. I can tell you, well, 
in some ways I can tell you exactly where it came from. A long time ago, a reader sent me an email um, saying nice things about my books. And she mentioned that she was drinking cloudberry tea as she as she wrote the email. And I'd never heard of cloudberry tea before. And so, and I was really enchanted by the idea of cloudberry tea. Maybe everybody, maybe everybody else has already, maybe you drink it yourself all the time. I don't know, but I just thought that sounds magical. So I wrote back to her and said one day, I want to write a book on featuring cloudberry tea. And then years went by and in the back of my mind and now and then I would think, oh, I promised her I was going to write a book about cloudberry tea. My mother always told me that if you make a promise, you should keep it. <laughs> so one day I thought... <laughs> I am now compelled to write this book. So I sat down and wrote the first chapter of a book without knowing anything about it. I just decided to make it about a 10-year-old girl whose parents have been killed by pirates. And Cloudberry Tea features in the first chapter. And I had um, no plans for it at all. And usually I had always written young adult fiction, but suddenly Cloudberry Tea seemed to take me into the world of younger children's fiction and when I finished the chapter, I thought, and this might sound ridiculous, but I thought this is exactly the kind of book that I've always wanted to write. Okay. Um, and then, and then I, and then because something felt really different about it, I decided to just set it aside and only write it when I felt in that in that particular mood, that kind of cloudberry tea mood. And so for years, I just added now and then because with my other books. It's it, it was like a, it is like it's my profession, and so I have a structured, disciplined approach to to the writing of the other books. But with this one, this one reminded me of the way I used to write when I was young, and writing was pure pleasure. So I wanted to keep that pleasure. So I just came back to it and added another chapter when I wanted to be in Bronte's world again. And about halfway through, I decided uh, that I wanted that I, I wanted to make this into a book. And then I thought, I'm going to try and write each chapter in a different cafe. And so I went in my neighborhood. And so I went around to different cafes and in the mornings um, and wrote a different chapter in each cafe. Although I kept coming back, I broke that rule in the end because I kept coming back to the local chocolate shop, which is um, where you can get tea or hot chocolate, which just the best place to work because it's tidy and and they have uh, well you're surrounded by chocolate and <laughs> they play great they play great music and they have they have this extraordinary chandelier made out of glass teacups so I kept going back there in the end I finished it in the chocolate shop and um, that was a very different way of writing the way that I usually write. So how long did the whole process take you? How long did it take you to draft it from start to finish? Like even that you were sort of just doing it as you felt like it and then I really like your idea of going to a different cafe for every chapter. I'm going to try that. Um, but what, <laughs> you know, what, um, how long did the actual, until you sort of got a draft that you were happy with, did it take you? Uh, I think it must have been a few years. I think once we started writing in a concentrated way, it took me about, eight months before that there were probably four years of occasionally going back to it mm. so that yes I think it's that might be five years in total but yeah that's in, in a fragmented fragmented timeline and did you find um because you know as you say like you you've used a, a different writing process to what you would normally use in the sense of you know it's it, you would normally obviously plan it out 
quite extensively before you start writing? Is that how you would you would approach your other books? Yeah, I've found with each of my books, I've, my plans have got longer and longer. So yeah. with when I used to write when I was young, I never planned at all, really. Mm-hmm. And with my first book, with Feeling Sorry for Celia, I had a two-page plan, I think. And then with each book, as I've taken myself more seriously as a writer and also been a bit become a bit more afraid with each book because the, uh, there's a contract and this is how I make my living and... So it seems more important you cannot accidentally write yourself into it. I I just don't want to, I'm terrified of accidentally writing myself into a corner Mm. or finding that this story has nowhere to go. So with each book, my plans have got longer and longer. And and the most recent books before this one was my Colors of Madeline trilogy, which was a fantasy trilogy. And I knew it was going to be a series before I started. So with that one, I spent over a year writing a plan for the whole thing and the plan was about um, 200 pages long so yes with every other book I plan and and their plans are really long and I, I love planning it's really I find uh, but at the same time yeah I find a lot of pleasure from planning I can feel like it can go in any direction the story wants to go in and, and it's before you start you know where before you start writing there's that possibility that this is going to be a masterpiece. So <laughs> the longer you put off actually writing and finding out, oh, no, it's just me again, the longer you can believe this is going to be genius. Wait for this to start. So sometimes I think it's procrastination. Mm. But but my sister, um, Leon, is also – two of my sisters are also writers, and Leon um, is a very successful writer, and she never plans her book at all she mm. just sits down and starts writing and yes, then we've she spoken to Leon to on the what? podcast and she has yeah. um and she told us about her process and and I I remember being stunned because you know you were reading these quite you know these these uh, you know but the, it's that notion of how do you not know this is going to happen at the end if you don't you know before you start how do you <laughs> exactly. get to this point how do, and she would explain yeah. how she was sitting in a car and she'd be like oh that's who did it and I was just like my head was exactly um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I'd imagine so if I you're just, a planner, yeah. that would feel the same to you, yeah. that your head would explode a little bit at the idea. It, it does. Well, I love her book so much and I have plotting is masterful. And it's just like you, that I one of her books when I read the manuscript of Big Little Lies, which is the one mm. that just got made into a TV series, when I finished it and called her up and was raving about all the things I loved about it. And, um, and I said, and I couldn't believe that, Blah turned out to be the murderer, and she said, "I know, I couldn't believe it either." <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about. So let's go back to Bronte. This is your first book sure. for younger readers. Um, so, mm-hmm. what did you find different about writing for this age group rather than, um, sort of, writing teens YA or you know, writing for adults um, as you have done? It's hard to know because it was such a different process. It's hard to know how much the uh, difference was because of the age group and how much was because of the process because I because I did decide not to plan this one at all because mm. I thought why does Leon get to not Leon get to not plan and, <laughs> <laughs> so, and so there was the pleasure the pleasure of that I just knew that Bronte was going to go and visit her 10 aunts and so it was like being on a on a journey with her and waiting to find out with, with, with each aunt waiting to find out what 
she was like because Bronte had met some of the aunts before, but many of them were strangers to her. So I, I was, and also Bronte is narrating the story. So it was almost as if I just decided I'm going to wait and tell, let Bronte tell the story. So it was yeah. crazy and sounds more mystical than I usually am, but that's how it felt. Bronte's telling the story and I'm going to wait to see what she says. But also because I, um, it, it also was that age group, the nine to 12 year old magical adventure stories, um, like C.S. Lewis and, um, the, the Narnia books and, uh, what's her name? Inez, but the, um, the, I don't know if you know the Phoenix and the Carpet books, uh, five children, five children. And yeah, a lot of people don't seem to have heard of them, but they were a big part of my childhood and Arthur Ransom. And they, that sort of story is the one that really caught me as what stories should be when I was that age. So that's what I've always wanted to write. So for me, it was, and, and, Previously, when I tried to write books like that, they hadn't worked. And it was um, for me, and I feel like I wasn't quite ready. I don't know. And I kept wanting my characters to be older, and I wasn't interested in my characters until they were 15 and could be a bit edgy and sexy. And <coughs> excuse me, my, even my Colors of Madeline trilogy, because it is my first, that was my first fantasy um proper fantasy trilogy. That one's set partly in the real world and partly in the fantasy kingdom. And originally I wanted that to be children's book and the kid and the characters were um twelve year olds. But it, that I kept starting it and it kept not working and I realized it's because I don't believe in these characters and I I made them older and then they came alive to life for me. Mm. But with this book the characters um a character of Bronte just was immediately real to me and so now it could work for me and so because it's Bronte in, in a lot of ways it didn't feel different to my other books because I always wait till I have the characters and then and then the story is there I I don't want to keep saying that oh the story just comes alive because of the characters because that um that's not fair to mm. there is also a lot of up to not fair to me because it's like suggesting I didn't have to do anything because uh, there's still a lot there's still a lot of even when you're not planning things you are walking along around thinking about them and trying to draw connections and trying to figure out what might happen like Leanne said about driving along in a car so even though you're not sitting down writing out your structure um you're thinking and and there was a lot of uh especially because it wasn't planned there was a lot of sleepless nights trying to work out how does this work and then and it's wonderful when it comes together and also i did more editing of this than i had before with my other books i think the big plans that i write are really like first drafts so i don't i don't do too my edit as i go along with this one i did a lot more um shuffling around and and bringing out ideas that occurred to me near the end and so on. So you can do that with computers. <laughs> you can. So you were the first Moriarty sister to publish a book and then, of course, the three of you, Leanne, Nicola and yourself, have gone on to publish lots and lots of books. Um, what's it like being part of a writing family? Like is it competitive or is it sort of complementary or how does it work? 
<laughs> I think it's it's not. I I might be um, imagining this, but I don't think it's, we're competitive at all. Mm. I think we're all very aware of how lucky we are and how unlikely it is because that's the dream to be a writer. So mm. it would be crazy to. I it, I'm really happy all the time to be writing. So it would be mad for me to say, oh, why can't I write the, get the kind of sales that Leanne gets? I'd like to get a few more sales. <laughs> um, but it's more that, uh, and and I think also maybe there's a slight difference because my books are generally um, for young adults and this one's for children. Yeah. I've written a, one adult book and I've got one another adult book coming up next year. Mm. I've got something in my throat, sorry, excuse me, I just clear my throat. Sorry, um, but even my adult books are quite different to Leanne and Nicola's books. So, in some ways, it might be easier because they are. I would like to have a bit of magic in them, right. um, and so, in some ways, I have my own space. And I, I don't know if there's. I don't think Leanne. I haven't seen any. But Leanne and Nicola's writing is maybe a bit more similar. But even that is, they're also quite different. They have their own voices, and and. I think uh, it was harder for Nicola than me because she, because she's come in um, third and so she's got the voices in her head and the voices out there saying, oh, you're just doing this because your sister's doing it. Mm. And she's comparing things. And I was thinking, so sad because she's um, she did a master's in creative writing, a degree in creative writing, and she won the creative writing prize for that. And then... She wrote a novel and got a two-book deal and with two small children with a different publisher to Leon and my publisher. And those kinds of things are extraordinary. She should just be celebrating and drinking champagne. She's, Absolutely. And instead of that, she's all full of doubt and insecurities and thinking, why aren't I achieving at the same level as Leon and Jackie? So it's not fair to her. Um, it's probably just part of, it's so, also part of being a writer, isn't it, comparing yourself to... Yeah. Yeah, it's a very hard thing to switch that, off for anyone, I think. That's a really good point. And that's the only, that's the only issue for me, that I, um, the insecurity and doubts. And as you say, you're absolutely right. That is what it is to be a writer, waking up in the middle of the night and and despising, despising your writing and thinking you're a failure, all those kinds of things. Um, and and each book just, yeah, oh, you, you know, all that stuff. So that manifest, that having um, Leanne having been so successful, I'm so proud of her and so excited for her. And it's always, I love, um, I love hearing all her stories of, um, we get first-hand accounts of her going to the, being at Red red carpet events and yes. being at the Emmys and and I don't really want to I wouldn't mind going to those things I'll be alright if it happens but I don't know um, I'm not I'm, I think that I almost prefer to hear about it from the arm than have to worry about what I would wear or, <laughs> or how to behave on a red carpet I, so, I have no idea yeah. what I would wear but anyway uh, exactly yeah so she has meetings with Nicole Kidman and I think I wouldn't yeah I have nothing in my wardrobe that I can meet <laughs> Went to a meeting with Nicole Kidman, but I love hearing about the meetings with Nicole Kidman and all those events. So yeah, so that I love hearing about it. The only difficulty is that I that that becomes the the um you know how you look for things to be insecure about. Yeah. So I can wake in the middle of the night and think she's 
so much more successful than me. Maybe I should just stop. Maybe I'm not. And then I, in the day, I think that's stupid. What are you talking about? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And and she wouldn't be happy to hear me say that either. Because no, I think people write think for a lot of reasons, don't they? And I think that if you have to exactly. look at all the reasons that you write and to keep the perspective on what it is that you're doing. That's, yeah, that's that's a very good point. That's, yeah. Yes, because right, so it's not just about, yeah. No, it's not just about oh, wearing okay. sequins at the Emmys, although and, and <laughs> exactly. worrying about you know what you would wear underneath. Um, so let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk a little bit about how your first book came to be published. Like, I mean, because you know that's the dream deal, isn't it? Your first book when you when you go um, back. So, mm-hmm. how did that happen for you? Like, what was the journey to publication for you as an author? Um, well, I grew up wanting to, always wanting to be a writer and doing lots of. Half, half novels um, or first chapters and stories um, and not really being able to get anywhere with publishing them um, and then I did that thing where you realise that where you think uh, grown ups don't actually become writers, it's not realistic and I um, so I started English and law at um, university, and then I went overseas uh, to study more law to put off becoming a lawyer um, for as long as I could. Um, so I went and did a master's at um, Yale and a PhD at Cambridge. And while I was at Cambridge, I um, oh, I should say before that, before that happened, friends of mine when I was at law school, friend of two friends of mine wrote a Dolly fiction. I do, I do know the Dolly Fiction yeah, yeah, series. Yeah, it's a yeah. long time ago. A long time, yeah. Um, and that, they were teen, teen romances. And the two friends of mine got together and wrote one together. They got a contract and wrote one together. And that was a kind of, you know, that idea that you have that you, it's not realistic to be a writer. Real people can't do it. That imaginary people write books. Mm. And that the fact that two of my friends had actually made a book even though it was a little teen romance, just was, um, but they, they wrote it really well. They wrote, it was a great book and great storytelling and um, professional. And that to me made it impossible to write a book. And so there's a time between uh, when you finished law school and you go, you, you get your professional qualifications at the College of Law, which is a six month program. And if you don't get into the first half of the year of the program, you have to, wait six months and go into the second half of the year. And so most people get jobs in law firms um, for that six months while they're waiting uh, like paralegal jobs. But instead of getting a paralegal job, I decided I was going to do an experiment and see if I could make my living as a writer. Um, and just in an um, imaginary six-month way. So I was also doing other part-time jobs but I, um, so I could make money to live on but I I got a contract to do one of those Dolly Fiction books I think you got $2,000 for it was quite good and so so in that six months instead of working as a lawyer I wrote a Dolly Fiction teen romance which was such a good experience to um, to, to make it seem possible to that you could make some money from writing and also to work on structuring and and planning and writing, making yourself write a complete 
short novel and then polishing it. All of that was a good experience. What was it called? So anyway, that's, yeah. Uh, I think it was called Takata Summer. Oh. It was a bit too long in the end. I had to cut dramatically so <laughs> some of the plot line doesn't work. I don't, <laughs> I, luckily, you can't find it anywhere, but I had two days or something to cut. I always talk too much. I'm talking too much now. So <laughs> I had two days to cut to cut ten thousand words or something, and so yeah, don't look for Takata Summer. What but, a shame! I, I but like, anyway, it's a nice name. yeah, Takata Summer is a good title. I like it. Thank you. Good job. I think there's another. I've seen another. I think there's another book out which I think is quite a good book. Somebody else has written called Takata oh, Summer. So see, what's the yeah. title? Somebody but else yeah, liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so. When I was at Cambridge doing my PhD, that's when I realised once I'd finished the PhD, I was going to have to, I'd run out of things to do to avoid being a lawyer. And so I knew this was my last chance to become a writer. And so I wrote, that's when I wrote Feeling Sorry for Celia while I was doing the PhD um, because I I just, and I, that's when I got really ruthless with myself. I was quite hard that because writing is so much fun. And but write it. This was the book where I thought I am going to write a very good book that I can imagine being published. And I think before then I had written mostly I'd written for myself. And this one, I said I want to I want to be able to visualize this as an actual book. And and that made a big difference I think for me. It, it made me stop um, writing in myself into corners and, and half finishing books and, and writing, you know, you just write silly things because you're being experimental. I thought I want this to be original and I want, so I, I was, and I wrote it at night cause I was doing the PhD during the day. So I was strict with myself and then, um, and I finished it and sent it to a publisher in um, London and they sent it back to me and said, no, thank you. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I sent it to I sent it to about ten other publishers and ten agents, and they all said no. And um, so I brought it back home with me to Australia and got a job as a lawyer. And then I sent it uh, one more time to an agency in Sydney. <coughs> Excuse me, I don't know why I have to keep clearing my throat. Sorry. Um, and uh, the the author Garth Nix was um, working as an agent at the time. Oh. And he's the person, yeah, so he he is the person who opens the envelope and he really liked it and offered to be my agent and he found me publishers in um, Australia and America and England. So, yeah, Go that's my story. <laughs> it's a good story. Yeah, exactly. Garth so I love <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so what does a typical, is there such a thing as a typical writing day? Like, What does it look like for you now? Are you someone who writes every day at a set time or are you someone who writes, you know, just when you have something that you're working on or what, like, how does it work for you? Um, I write every day, but not on the weekend. Um, and usually at a set time, but I don't really believe in that. You know, people always say you have to write every day. Mm. I don't believe in that. Um, Sometimes you need a few days off and it makes all the difference. That's mm. what I think. Um, but my day is that I take, I have an 11 year old son and I um, take him to school in the morning and then I walk. Um, I live near 
Carabelli. Yep. And I walk across the harbour. I take him to school and I walk into Carabelli and across the harbour bridge and back again. And then and I look at the water and the boats while I'm walking. And so I find looking at the water helps my imagination. And also just walking fast makes my I, that kind of exercise also. I think that helps with creativity. Yeah. So then I go to a then I go to a cafe, often to the chocolate shop. And then I go to a cafe in the morning and write. Um, I might do some writing on my laptop, or I might do some planning mm. of the next chapter, or reading, research, reading, and and I take color colored texts and pencils and big note pads and uh, write and do a lot of scribbling and planning, brainstorming and drawing pictures and things like that to plan the next chapter. And then I come home and write at my computer for the afternoon. Wow, and then okay. it's time to go and get Charlie from school. So that's my day. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And what about the promotion side of being an author? Are you someone who's active online or do you promote your books in other ways? Or what do you, I mean, do you enjoy the promotion side of it? I like it. Yeah, I like it a lot now. I didn't used to, I used to be frightened and nervous and shy and, now I think because I spent a long time working writing at home by myself I am so excited to have social interaction but mm. I like it and I am really happy to be talking to people and that's when I talk for too long because like that crazy person you want you know if you're by yourself for a while you go into a shop and you start making crazy long conversations with people in the shop so so I quite enjoy I enjoy it I, and I, I just like meeting people and and um, talking to people. So I like that side of it now. I'm not very good online at all. And my publishers are always telling me to do more, be more active, do it properly. I don't do it properly. And I had a, I had a blog for a while and I updated it every three years, I think, which is not how you do a blog. Apparently. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what about author talks in schools? Do you do a lot of that sort of thing? Are you going out to talk um, to teenagers? Like, talk, talk to us about that. Do you got any tips for talking to teens? Oh, I want to hear other people's tips for talking to teens. <laughs> <laughs> that is the one thing that does feel. I, I, I usually really like it um, once it gets going. But that's the thing that still terrifies me, talking to teenagers. And with this book, uh, because you never, it can go wrong, you can think, and teenagers are so different, and it depends on the group and the culture at the school, because you can think, I've got my talk figured out, you can have a really successful one where all the, all the kids are really, look really interested and they're laughing and it's good, and you think, okay, I've got it figured out, I understand how to talk to young people now, and then the next school is a complete disaster, and, and you know, the honesty of teenagers, they, if they find you boring, they yawn without covering them up in your face and and they start talking to each other and and then the, when that happens I start panicking the more you panic the worse it goes so I do when it goes well I love talking to those young people it's good and but yes but that's my great fear and now I, I guess uh, yeah I don't do it as much as other people do because no. I find it takes up a lot of my mind space when I have a school talk coming up in two weeks it's on my mind for the two weeks beforehand fair enough all right so uh, let's wrap up today with your top three tips for writers what's what's sort of some of the best advice that you would give aspiring authors um i'm trying to think of something that 
because I know people here that say the same things a lot. So what I know people always say, okay, the first one can be to, I know people always say this, reading reading a lot, and I know that's the most obvious one, but what I find helpful is um, reading really widely, not just, because uh, people used to say read a lot, and I would always be reading my favourite style and genre of book and favourite mm-hmm. authors. And then I realised that the the key is in reading outside outside your favorite style and also outside the style of and genre of writing that you want to <laughs> excuse me I don't got dust pollen <clears throat> something sorry you need some also, <clears throat> <laughs> you do I'll just have a glass of water hang on mm-hmm. I'm sorry about that right. uh, so reading nonfiction um science and history and and poetry. So because I usually write for young adults, I read a lot of young adult books, but I find it's really important also to read um, science fiction. And sometimes, often I notice I read books by women, but I, so sometimes I try and read something by men. Um, so that you have a variety. Uh, well, I think nonfiction and um, science and history and things like that really um, trigger your imagination mm. in unexpected ways and reading literary books to remind yourself that you um, of all the all the possibility that is out there um, at the same time as reading kids books if you're writing a kids book I mm. think is important because um, you should never be writing down to children so be aware all the time of writing is and I don't mean that literary writing is the only great writing because there are wonderful children's books that are just as good as literary books I think so that's the first one the second one I think is also a variation on the usual advice which people always say keep a diary mm-hmm. and I never found that very very helpful until I started a, a different kind of diary which is a, a kind of stream of consciousness thing that I write most days I haven't for a while so that's a lie but I try to write um, on my computer so that you can write it fast and where I try to each day try to write not just a description of what happened that day but a few lines where I um, talk about the details of one incident from my day or one conversation I had or describe one person I met or try to get underneath one emotion that I had, try to explore it, and I found that much more helpful than just keeping a regular diary doing that. Because, okay. and also then, yeah, it 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 really helps um, with the way you, if, if you talk about people you've seen, then it helps with character um, description. Mm. And I don't think I've got a third tip. <laughs> the third they, tip is they are two terrific tips. Those two are long. We're happy with okay, them. Thank you. It's all good. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jacqueline. It's been very, very interesting. And best of luck with the extremely inconvenient adventures of Bronte Metalstone. Um, we will put a link in the show notes to your website, etc. And I hope that, um, yeah, I hope it goes really, really well for you. Thank you so much, and it was so lovely talking to you. Thank you for the great questions. (laughs) 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Short Story Essentials, will show you the techniques to create your own 2,500 word short story. Created by Cathy Tasker, a fiction editor with more than 25 years' experience, this course has a very clear goal to help you write your own short story that you can be proud of, one that you can enter in short story competitions and share with your friends and family. We give you the blueprint to structure your short story, teach you vital techniques so that your characters come to life and give you the tools to bring your own ideas and creativity to the process. The course is split into seven modules and each is designed to guide you through each step of writing your full story. Then, once you've completed it, you can submit your story for personal feedback from your tutor. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash stories. Wow. Okay, cool. Jacqueline Moriarty. I, I love that how she goes to, she went to a different cafe for every chapter. That sounds like fun, actually. I, I also love the fact that she ended up staying at the same chocolate shop. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes, like, it, yes, it's excellent to go to different places, but sometimes you just want to go. It's a little bit like Cheers. You know, you just want to go where everybody knows your name and you know you're going to yes. get your favourite truffle. Like, you know, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it was oh, wow. interesting. Yeah, and I, you know, she's I, I just you know, they've she's very um, straight up about about sort of like being Leanne's sister, and it's one of those situations as an interviewer because um, you know, obviously, I'm interviewing Jacqueline, and I want to talk about Jacqueline, and I want to talk to Jacqueline, mm. and I want to discuss mm. Jacqueline's book, but I can't not mention Leanne because she mm. suddenly becomes the elephant in the room that we're not talking about, you know, and that's not. That, you know, but it must be, I guess, I just wonder what it would be like if I was, you know, say my sister um, Bronwyn suddenly became super famous mm. and I was her, what would that be like? Would I be frustrated? I, you know, anyway, I think they all handle it extremely diplomatically. And mm. um, Leanne was also, I mean, we interviewed her, as I think I, I mentioned in the interview, yeah, back, like she was one of our very first um, mm. interviews and, and before she was, you know, treading the Emmy's carpet, carpet and stuff like yeah. that. But as Jacqueline said, you know, she's like, oh, do I, I look at her and I think, do I want to be walking the Emmy's carpet or do I just want to hear about it from Leanne? And I think sometimes I would probably prefer to just hear about it from Leanne than have to, you know, find a dress. <laughs> oh, and, you know, walking, I mean, and, and walking alongside all of those terribly elegant women. I mean, imagine standing next to Nicole Kidman anywhere. Oh, <laughs> my like, God. <laughs> I know. I'll just be here at the back if you want me. <laughs> <laughs> Although having said that, I wouldn't say no if I had the opportunity to walk the Emmy's red carpet. Oh, no, you wouldn't say no. But it, I, if I think about, you know, dreams, is that my dream? I, no, it's actually not probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not really. I wouldn't mind being in the audience. I think that would be quite fun. Um, oh, yes. The, just the, I, I think I would find that just that very short stretch of carpet very stressful. But backtracking to the important things in life um, and the chocolate shop. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Do you have a favourite chocolate or chocolate shop? I know this is completely irrelevant, but that's what it made me think of when you spoke about I her love, going back to the chocolate shop. 
Yeah, so mm. my favourite chocolate shop in the whole world is Adora Chocolates, which is um, – mm. <laughs> how's this? So when I lived in Marrickville, um, mm. you know, which is where I lived before I um, moved to the south coast about, you know, not quite 10 years ago, um, when I lived in Marrickville, I lived about 100 metres from the chocolate shop on the river and it was like, you know, seriously, when you've got small children having a chocolate mm-hmm. shop that close <gasps> – genius thing so it's my absolute favorite and every time we we sort of because we do go back to Sydney fairly regularly for you know a million things mm-hmm. and uh we do make an effort to drive past on a regular basis just so we can pop in and buy ourselves a little mix box wow I'm just looking at the website now and like oh, it's beautiful just so we're clear this is not sponsored in any way Alex oh. is genuinely unless, unless Dora would Unless Adora oh. would like to ship me boxes of chocolates, in which <laughs> feel free, and I will mention you regularly. No, it's, Salted um, it's, caramel nibbles. Oh, my God, that looks yeah. amazing. They make okay. this thing called a black box, which mm-hmm. is – it's got this deep burnt caramel in the middle of a, of a dark mm. chocolate and it's it's wrapped up like a little like a little parcel. looks like a little box. And it is – it would be, I would say, that is my favourite chocolate in the entire universe. I'm going to go try some. Universe. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Awesome. Nice. That's my favourite. What's your favourite? Um, I used to like all chocolates mm-hmm. uh, and then maybe two years ago, I don't know what happened, like to my body or something, um, I just started finding all of them way too sweet. Not all of them, a lot of them way too sweet. So I used to be able to, like I could eat chocolates every day if you, if you know, if they were there. Um, but, yeah, I'm much more selective now because I just find a lot of them too sweet for my, I don't know, my teeth. Your ageing taste buds. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. I like, I've always liked dark, I like dark chocolate. I like really yes. dark chocolate. The darker the better. Um, mm. And I have never been able to eat lint balls since the day. So I, when we worked at Cleo, I don't know if you remember this, we used to get these like at Christmas time and stuff. They would send us this massive kind of tray mm. of lint balls. It would have like three or 400 yeah. lint balls on it. Um, mm. You know, there'd be like 20 people in the office. They so do the maths. That is a lot of lint balls, right? Yes. So I have never been able to eat lint balls ever <laughs> since. I can't even look at them. Like uh, people give them to me and I'm like, I don't mind. I, I can I can maybe occasionally have one of the dark ones, but mm. they will sit in the fridge. If people give me lint balls, they will sit in the fridge for months until mm. the children <laughs> finally go, Mum, if you're not eating them, we are. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. Yes. But, yeah, no, wow. I like dark. But I also have, and I have to confess, okay, yes. so while I have this deeply sophisticated dark chocolate thing going on, yes. I also have an absolute childhood you know, aberration love yes. for things for things like strawberry freddos. Totally, oh. like if you think about how sweet they are, right? Strawberry freddos, yeah. and you know when you eat when when you get the snack bar of chocolate, the Cadbury yeah. snack. Yeah, I like the pineapple. Oh. The pineapple. Nobody likes the pineapple, right? No. I'm the pineapple and the strawberry girl on the snack bar. What oh, are you? It's weird. What's I don't eat the snack bar at all. No, 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 no. I do not like chocolate with stuff in it that's not what? chocolate. No, except for caramel no. and or praline. I it's brown stuff. I can only eat the brown stuff. Anything that's pink Seriously? or yellow or white or oh any filling. I've got the weirdest brown. I've got oh. the weirdest thing for yeah, like I'm really not a massively sweet tooth when it comes to that sort of stuff, but I cannot go past Cadbury roses. 
you know the again the strawberry ones. Yes. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Childhood obsession I, with sickly sweet soft centers. No, I just pick out the the brown ones. <laughs> we would rock in a box. It, it just, I used to have this friend and she would be like, she was on the search her entire life for the perfect partner in a box of chocolates. So someone who just liked all the ones that you didn't. And we went very, very close to being, because she liked a hard center, I liked a soft center, I liked the squishy bit, she liked the brown tea. You know, you and I might go all right with a box of chocolates. I think so. All right, let's give it a go next time we catch up. All right, all right so... Um, well, this brings us to the end of this episode. We're talking about chocolates. I think uh, this is where what? Sophie Monk went wrong with the Bachelorette. She clearly just needed to get out a box of chocolates and see who exactly. ate all the ones she didn't like. Exactly, exactly. All right. So, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you will find me at alisontate.com, A L L I S O N T A I 2 T, where I do not talk about chocolate. Um, and you will find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer and Twitter at, at Al Tate. What about you, Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure you connect with us in the Facebook group for listeners. So just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and we'd love to have you in there. It's such an awesome group of people and I just love connecting with you all. So uh, you'll find the show notes, of course, at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.